0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Two Cyberchecks podcast. You're about to join Erica and Jax for an inclusive cybersecurity conversation designed to educate and break the stereotypes of cybersecurity professionals, while providing life hacks on how to handle burnout, networking, and goal setting. Knowledge is power. Now more than ever.
1: Hey, Jax, you ready for this?
2: I am stoked.
1: <laughs> okay, well, today we have a super special guest, Matt Halverson. Matt joins us with a super impressive background. He has spent past 20 plus years working in the government agency sector and also he's an adjunct professor all while earning loads of brilliant recognition along the way. Matt thank you so much for taking the time to meet with two cyber chicks today. Jax and I are super excited to have you. Before we get started we'd love to kick things off by just letting you give a quick intro on your background your experience and how you got to where you are today.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here also. It's great to speak to two cyber chicks. I have one cyber chick at home with my wife, but having two more is all right. makes <laughs> it a little nice. So I appreciate that. So as you said, I'm Matt Halverson. I'm presently a, an FBI supervisory special agent on joint duty assignment to one of the office of the director of national intelligence's mission centers. Specifically, I'm at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center in the supply chain and cyber directorate. That's a hell of a business card that makes my mom proud. The short version is I work supply chain threats. That's what I do. And I've been at NCSC now for about two and a half years. I've been in the FBI for coming up on 20 years. And prior to uh, being in the FBI, I was in the Navy for five years. It's been a heck of a career. I started out doing... Italian organized crime in the New York field office of the FBI, where I did that for many years, which was stuff right out of books and movies, uh, which don't really do it any credit to how much it really is. Then I transferred down to Washington, D.C. and got to work complex counterterrorism matters for a big portion of my career, which is pretty wild, during the height of that we were dealing with in the mid-2000s. And then I started working... Uh, really, the intelligence matter issues, God, can't even remember when it started in my career, but it, it's been accurate. I've been doing the supply chain, as I said, for two and a half years now. It's been incredibly interesting to enter into this space prior to you know, the pandemic showing up and punching everybody in the face with supply chain issues, right? And I'll say that we work the supply chain threat slash security issues vice the logistical issues, right? It's a big uh, differentiation that we want to talk about or, or mention but they're all you know, kind of intermixed in that piece. And as you mentioned, I'm Adjunct Pressure, I've been at Georgetown uh, teaching now for a little over a year. I'm entering into my fifth semester teaching here come March, uh, which has been a heck of a ride as well.
2: That is awesome. And that's how I met you, Matt, is through Georgetown. And I was in your supply chain risk class last term. And it was Really insightful. I really appreciated all the materials that you provided and all the interviews. And then I talked to Erica and I'm like, we've got to have him on the show. So I have to take a step back really quick. You said Italian crime units. Was that in the States or was, I'm assuming that was Kona's here involved. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How cool is that? I'm thinking the first thing and Erica wrote it over here. I was thinking like AK mob. Is that kind of what you were involved in?
3: That's exactly what I was involved in. Italian organized crime, traditional mob investigations, traditional Italian organized crime in the New York field office. So I specifically investigated the Colombo crime family. That was the the family squad that I was assigned to. And I did that for five years. It was uh, incredibly interesting, rewarding work. I worked with some tremendous investigators, uh, really kind of earned my chops and learned the business of being a criminal investigator doing that work. It was a heck of a ride, but yeah, it is Right in Brooklyn, Long Island, Manhattan. That was the, the general stomping ground with the family I worked.
2: That's so wild. And now we're fast forward and you are smack middle in supply chain and you mentioned it. And I'm glad that you brought this up. You work in the cyber supply chain, which is different from some of the issues that we're seeing with uh, the logistics of supply chain. So. Supply chain, the risks around it, what I'd like to do is yeah. take a moment and have you explain what is a supply chain attack? Why is there so much talk around these type of attacks? What are the risks and the threats associated with this type of attack? And why is it so impactful to our nation if we have one of these attacks hit us successfully? There's a lot
3: of questions in there, Jack, <laughs> right? So generally what we talk about with a supply chain attack is where an adversary is indirectly attacking you right they're using one of your third parties as a threat vector to enter into your ecosystem and so it's really a big part of it is third-party risk so it's understanding those relationships with third parties that you enter into whether you're a government entity or a private entity right it's getting into those third-party relationships and realizing that foreign intelligence adversaries are using your third-party relationships, your vendors, as a threat vector to enter into your ecosystem. And when we talk about the types of threats, I break it down into two generalized types of threats from adversaries. The first is sabotage. And it's a, as it sounds, it's pretty basic uh, for it. It's the ability to cease functionality, right? It is turning something off, the ability to cease functionality. So think of the power grid and being able to flick, turn off the lights, right? That is a sabotage attack. Think of the ability to wipe your system clean, right? Erasing your data. That is a sabotage attack. And there's different reasons that a foreign adversary would conduct a sabotage attack. It could be in what we refer to in military uh, parlance as OPE, operational prep in the environment, which means you want to conduct a sabotage attack to kind of distract individuals. Another type might be to get rid of a competitor, right? Wiping out their data, their research, their systems uh, so that they're unable to continue business, right? That's another reason you would have a sabotage attack. The next generalized type of attack that we talk about is information theft, And we specifically use the term information theft because we don't want people to think that we are solely focused on classified information in government holdings, right? We are talking information which could include intellectual property, personally identifiable information, plans and intents merger and acquisition information. So, it it's really information in the broadest sense. So, we are not focused just on government. We are focused, obviously, on private sector as well. Part of the reason that we also want to broaden that term is the US government, generally speaking, doesn't own factories, right? We purchase everything from bullets, band-aids, battleships. The US government buys that stuff. So, we need to make sure that we understand that that intellectual property, that information is generally being held by private industry, right? Private industry is the one building those things. So, they're the ones that generally have that information that's being attacked by foreign adversaries. Not to say that the classified information isn't of value, but it's not the only thing of value, right? There's plenty of information in the unclassified space that is of great value to foreign intelligence entities.
1: There's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, Jax and I, from the cybersecurity lens, like, All the keywords that you were rattling off, yeah, they they totally make sense. I can see why your focus has been there. So related, supply chain attacks have completely, I mean, gone through the roof. They've tripled in 2021 alone. We saw the uptick in software supply chain attacks, including SolarWinds, and then most recently with Log4j. Some of the factors associated with these breaches are open source software. What do you believe, if anything, it may be a mix of things, can help to reduce not only the occurrence, but then also the magnitude of these attacks that we've been seeing?
3: It really comes down to best practices, right? What best practices are there out there to help mitigate these threats? And there are a lot that that organizations can do, and there's a lot on the horizon of things to come that will really help with that. The first thing that you can do as an organization or as an individual to help mitigate the threat from these digital or or software supply chain attacks, is really good asset management, understanding what's in your systems, right? So you talk about log4j, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people in boardrooms going around saying, is that a threat for us? Is that a problem for us? And if you don't have good asset management, do you know if you have log4j? right? If you don't know what's in your system, if you haven't done that asset management to know what software is on your system, what components are in there, then it's going to be pretty hard to address that. Otherwise, you're doing software scans to try and see if you have that footprint on there. So a good asset management is a good place to start in that, right? Another thing that's really kind of on the horizon is this concept of software bill of materials or SBOM. And going along with SBOM is kind of software component analysis. So understanding if you can't get a software bill of materials from the software that you're purchasing is a good analysis of software, right? Using uh, component analysis uh, techniques to really understand that. So when I talk about software bill of materials, for those that are listening and may not be aware that that is really a breakdown of all of the components that are in the software to include the open source components. Because a lot of software is not written anymore, right? It's it's already, it's Legos, the open source pieces and people are taking those, those Legos. I use simple terms because I'm a uh, knuckle dragging, you know, uh, law enforcement type, right? So we take these open source Lego software pieces and we click them together and we have a piece of software, right? So you need to under, and that's what a software bill of materials, which is really a big effort coming out of. Sys has really taken some big piece of that. NTIA was a big piece of that, right? There's a lot of work going on on understanding software building materials and coming up with structures to determine when software building materials is necessary. So that's going to be a big piece of that is really understanding that. And building on those was, I came out of the executive order 14028, 14028, which was improving the nation's cybersecurity. And it was the definition of Uh, critical software that came out of that EO. So as you look at understanding your software components and your software bill of materials, is really looking at it for the critical software and was coming up with a good definition of critical software. And NIST was charged with doing that under the EO. They released that uh, not that long ago, their definition of software. And now CISA is going to take that definition to build it out into categories. So to summarize it, things you can do to help mitigate upfront would be asset management, looking at component analysis, if you cannot get a software bill of materials. And then over our horizon, I think we're gonna see big pushes, both from the government and on private industry for a good software bill of materials so that people know what they're buying into, right? So when you, it's like when you purchase a car, right? And when you purchase a car now, Car manufacturers are required to show where all the components are manufactured. And that's what's going to be coming for software. I see that coming. I think most people in the industry see that as coming. How good that's going to be and what that regulation looks like, how much of it is, is self-directed, how much it is directed as government. I mean, that's a, you know, a rulemaking, lawmaking process that's. It's going through the motions right now.
2: Yeah, I just saw recently there was a bill they just passed called the TLDR, Terms of Service Labeling, Design, and Readability, which I thought was really clever that they labeled it TLDR. But the focus was providing a summary statement for users on websites to know what type of data is being used. And I think Mm -hmm. we're going to start seeing more and more of that. But. and and you mentioned this on the software piece is understanding what is in that software Mm -hmm. and knowing what we're going to be receiving. And I'm looking at it from a government side because a lot of the tooling we use is open source. And I don't know if you heard, and this was a recent report. It came out first part of January, but there was a developer which actually he sabotaged his own coding library to basically protest against mega organizations, which is a great show of activism. So My question, because I've thought about this, being somebody that works on the federal side and has been in the military and has used some of these open source toolings, what can we do to better protect our federal side? Is it eliminating all open source tooling? I know that's probably not possible, but how can we really secure ourselves when we're getting this open source tooling and we're not going to know if it has been sabotaged or maybe some of the coding is bad?
3: Yeah. So we're not going to get rid of open source software. It's not going to be possible, right? Now, there are certain cases where you'll, you'll develop an in-house or so you'll specifically have a piece designed. Maybe it's on a national security system or some sort of critical system, right? But to get rid of it across the, the federal government would be, you know, implausible, right? It's just, you can't do it in today's environment and, the, and how ubiquitous software is and how necessary to the development of software open source solutions and tools are, right? They're really necessary. So it's figuring that out. So I think part of it you'll see is maybe some sandboxing, right? Where software is run and partitioned first and and run in kind of a secure sandbox environment to ensure there's no problems or in that. I think you'll see uh, some more of that going on, which will include testing. There'll be increased testing, depending on the level of criticality that the software is going to be using in an organization. I think you're going to see a big increase on that. I see an increase in partitioning of information, right? So that if systems are are you know compromised, that you know smaller pieces of data are being compromised. So I think I see some partitioning happening there. There's going to be you know increased emphasis on encryption and the ability to use backups to get you know back on track faster, right? It's one thing to have a, a backup of your system, or uh, but if that backup takes two weeks to unpack and get your system back up running, that's not, depending on your business, that's not really a viable, like you could be out of business in those two weeks, because your competitor beat you out, or, you know, if you're a government entity, before bad guys can do something really nefarious, right? So I think you'll see increases in the amount of speed that backups are being utilized to get things back into action. I think you'll see some there. But that's not really a mitigation as much as that is a disaster recovery plan, right? The SBOM initiative and the ability for the government, talking to your government listeners, the ability for the government to use that S Bomb, right, is gonna require learning on everyone's part, right? And it's gonna require people to actually understand the S Bomb, use the S Bomb, right? So it's coming up with a, a structure that works for the purchaser to really understand what they're looking at, and then being able to, you know, have that dialogue with the producer or vendor of that software, right? Hey, this component, we're not happy with this component. We find that it's a faulty or it's got you know bugs in it or it's let us down the wrong way before. Can you retool the software without this component? And depending on the size of your purchase, right? If you're the federal government buying a giant suite, you might have the purchasing power to make those changes. If not, you might not be able to, but you have to have those discussions to know whether you, what your answer is going to be.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think that you highlighted a lot of things that have become even more important in the past couple of years, especially with the pandemic and the way that's impacted the way we work. So first off, I mean, asset management, I think backup and restoration, business continuity, disaster recovery, those were all the things that were kind of like beeping in my head. I was like, wow, all these things have been highlighted so much It introduced somewhat of like a rogue workforce and the need for all of these things to be in place. And so some organizations that were, you know, not necessarily up to par, and didn't have a good grasp on all these things before, you know, we introduced this remote workforce. The pandemic really impacted a lot of organizations. We're still seeing some of that today. But I'm curious on how this all impacted your work. Did your work change at all? You know, working in the, the space that you work?
3: Yeah. So it's a great question. How did it change? So here's one of the things that it is change: is our phone started ringing off the hook. Right, that's one thing that that sub- these issues with the supply chain because of the pandemic really you know caused the supply chain director to be on everybody's mind, right? As I've said many times in the last year, you know nobody heard of supply chain until twenty months ago, and and now it's you can't pick up the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg News without reading about it, right? It's everywhere. So that's one thing is it increased our workload a lot in a good sense, right? It's good that people are wanting to you know address these issues. So that's good. We've also seen a lot of high profile supply chain attacks happen in the last, you know, 20 months. And that has really shown that this is a bigger problem than people knew it to be. These issues didn't appear, you know, 20 months ago, right? They were happening before that. They just weren't on the radar of a lot of organizations because they were, they were dealing with other matters. One of the things we say sometimes at NCSE is supply chain. Uh, Security today is where insider threat was 10 years ago. It is becoming ubiquitous to the calculus in organizations, whether you're a government organization focused on the security threats or whether you're a private business, you know, focused on, you know, risk and revenue as private industry likes to focus on supply chain threats has become a bigger issue with that. It's been interesting talking more and more to private industry. I do a fair amount of that in my job. And it's been really interesting to hear private industries calculus. So I've been very grateful to the increased outreach that's taken place as a result of the activities in the last 20 months. That's really broadened our understanding of the private industry's uh, calculus, and it's really helped us you know, have a better dialogue with private industry and work on those, those public-private partnerships?
2: So, CMMC, that is the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. For anybody listening is not familiar with that, in January, as you're aware of, in January 2020, the government rolled out with the new CMMC certification. And since then, there's been some revisions. We're currently in revision 2.0, could be more revisions. And for anybody doesn't know that's listening, CMMC was really designed for a framework for implementation. For companies that work specifically within the defense industrial base or the DIB and the government had rolled this out to find a better way of securing our supply chain, but really focused in on CUI data known as controlled and classified information. And really this spurred from two decades ago, right around 9-11 and really realizing, hey, we're not very good. We, the government are not very good with controlling our information and where it goes. And so I'm curious because I'm really passionate about the CMMC. I love this space because the focus is really on securing our supply chain and focused on our national security. However, there's some reservations that I have because the framework is creating a model to help organizations become compliant to secure their network in a way to identify where's our CUI data, let's secure it and let's protect it. But the flow of traffic and that CUI data going back and forth has not changed. So mm-hmm. we still have that flow. So what are your thoughts around you know, CMMC, especially with the revisions, do you think this is a good first step that the government is doing for the due diligence? Do you think it's enough? Do you think maybe there needs to be some additional things to go with the CMMC to help us secure that supply chain and that CY data? I know that's a lot.
3: (laughs) No, no, that's a lot of questions. So I'll start with the first caveat, which is at NCSC, we are part of the intelligence community, as opposed to the Department of Defense. So we are observers of the CMMEC process and how DOD is doing it. We listen to what they're doing, uh, we pay attention to it, but we are not contributors and we are not really providing a lot of direction on that. This is really kind of in their own lane. So that said, there's my caveat, right? I'm of the opinion that DoD, and I think they rightly are doing so, they need to do something, right? The Dib is an incredibly be- important part of the efforts that DoD has to move forward with. And they really understood that something had to be done. And sitting back and relying on... You know, self attestation and was probably not going to be the way of the future, and not, not going to work moving forward, right? And I don't think they wanted to go down the road of a naming and shaming either, right? I don't think they saw that as a viable way to do business, right? So that said, you know, DoD has you know their understanding of what they want to do. The DIB, their business model, right? So they may have something completely different. So trying to balance those two equities is not an easy task, right? It is not an easy task at all. I know that the revisions have given some people some pause, that it may have been, you know, losing some teeth. The CMNVC process might have been losing some teeth with version 2.0, as opposed to, you know, what they originally rolled out. I know where that bounce is going to be, right? I don't think it's going away, right? I don't think anybody believes that DOD is going to throw their hands up and say, all right, dib, forget it. We'll let you go back to, you know, business as usual. That said, my opinion also is I don't think DOD is, you know, going to, you know, drop their helmet and try and force their way into the Dib to do what they want, right? They're going to have to come to that balanced space, understanding that everybody, generally speaking, they both want the same thing. They want a secure environment where they can continue to provide the best support to the Department of Defense and the Department of Defense is getting good products at good value that they know are secure and are able to meet the mission space. That's a tough challenge. I think they're up to it. Is 2.0 the solution? Probably not, right? Yeah, there could be 3, 4, 5.0, right? They'll come to a middle ground on this. And it'll be interesting to see where the final rollout product is and how that affects the other sectors in the federal government. Meaning the intelligence community sector and then the civil sector, right? With your your non-Title 50 agencies. It'd be interesting to see how that is used, if it's used. And uh, listen, I'm all for uh, plagiarizing, right? I'll steal, uh, listen, I'll steal from the best federal agency, right? If somebody in the federal government's got a solution, why would I need to redo it? Why would I not just take that solution? So it would be, as a taxpayer, I'd be upset if the federal government didn't learn from DOD's experiences and use that in some of the other sectors, when is that going to take place? I think the other sectors might just wait a little bit longer and see how it plays out.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. We never know when people will be held to something, nor do we know when how long adoption will take. So yeah. that's a pretty safe thing to say for any of the certifications, frameworks, and everything in our space just in general. So to be continued. Um, yes. <laughs> Matt, I have a fun question for you. What is your favorite part about your job?
3: Wow, that's a good question.
1: There's just Um, right, so many things that are fun.
3: So I talked to some. Somebody asked me this a similar question when I was on a call a couple of weeks ago. And the favorite part of my job is interacting with some amazing people who really care, right? Who want to. It sounds so touchy feely, kumbaya, right? But being with a group of people that really care and want to do the best, you know, for the mission. That's a great thing to have, right? Having people that, that are mission focused and really care about providing the best support to the federal government, whether I'm in my duties as an FBI agent or my duties, you know, at DNI now, knowing that I get to work with those kind of people, that's really awesome. That's a great thing to have. Yes, that's the that's best awesome part of answer. my
1: job. I think that is an awesome answer. And for many, And I'll speak for myself. I think that that is one of the reasons where organizations get sticky and the reason that you want to stay up and show show up your face every single day. So it has been an absolute pleasure. This has been such an engaging conversation. Thank you so much for your time. If our listeners want to hear a little bit more or want to maybe get in touch with you, is there a best way to do that?
3: Yes, of course. So we have the standard website. We all have websites. So it's ncsc.gov. So November Charlie, Sierra Charlie.gov. And then we have a website, which is a correction, an email address for the supply chain Directorate, which is ncsc-supplychain-dni.gov. And that goes to all our folks in the supply chain Directorate. So if anybody has uh, specific questions we're happy to talk to them if you're in you know, the federal government local government state government private industry anybody wants to talk to them, we're happy to talk to you and the last plug i'll say is we are gearing up now we just started gearing up today for april this coming april which is national supply chain integrity month anybody looking for events uh, or anything to do for national supply chain integrity month i think this is our fifth one this uh, coming April. And yours truly is the cat herder for that. So happy to speak to anybody that wants to talk Supply Chain
2: Integrity Month.
1: Awesome. Well, y'all heard it here first.
2: Yeah, I love that. Thanks, Matt.
0: You're awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so
0: much, guys. This was a blast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Two Cyber Chicks podcast with Erica and Jax. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think